0: Hello and welcome to the i3 podcast. My name is Wouter Klein and I'm the Director of Content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3.com. The podcast was sponsored by Stuart Investors. As such, the sponsor may suggest topics for discussion, but final control over the podcast remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the iFree Podcast. I'm here today with Pablo Buruti, who is Senior Investment Specialist, Sustainable Funds Group at Stuart Investors. Can you tell me a little bit how you got involved in uh, sustainable investing and, and what sort of your ideas are around what sustainable investing is, what the definition is, and sort of your ideas there?
1: Uh, going uh, way, way back to uh, a former life as a, as a risk management and compliance professional, I, and this is sort of 2005, six, seven, in, in and around that period, I, I was always really, really interested in, particularly in environmental issues, but generally in sustainability issues more broadly. And I'd started to make the connection, which I hadn't done uh, in my career to that point, uh, for some reason, which I think is probably in, uh, was endemic across the industry at the time, that climate change was a risk, that climate change ought to be a risk that we managed like other risks, and yet it wasn't in our risk register, it wasn't in our risk management strategy, we didn't have it referenced in our investment policies and, and, and other types of, of, of risk management collateral that we had across the organization and plans. And so I started to advocate for well, why, why wouldn't we include this? And I think for a couple of years, it didn't, it didn't resonate like I was always politely uh, listened to, but <laughs> there, there wasn't a lot of change. We started to do small things like filling out carbon disclosure project and measuring our own footprint, but it was a bit too hard to wrap your arms around in terms of how these issues might impact uh, from whether it's from an investment perspective or as an investment organisation. And then fortunate for me, but I guess unfortunate for the firm, we, we we missed out on a mandate. And one of the reasons that we didn't win that mandate was because the fund manager said that he, when he was asked, what, what's your approach to ESG? He said, what's ESG? Uh, and that was one of the top reasons that was given for not, for not winning that mandate. And so I got a call from the chief investment officer at the time saying, I'll oh, come up, you're the, you know, you're the guy always talking about climate change. What's this ESG stuff? And of course, I didn't know what ESG was. I just knew that I cared about these other issues. And so I did, did, did some research, started to look at what was happening across the market. And it was clear that things were changing. So it was it was the principles for responsible investment were only a couple of years old. At that time, uh, there were more and more uh, asset owners. So some of our clients who were signing up to the principles, there were groups forming like the Investor Group on Climate Change. And so as we went and investigated this issue, this was a perpetual, it became more and more clear that we, we needed to have a position on it. And so that turned into a role for myself. And it was a, it was a really nice way to, to start thinking about sustainable investment because we had a very strong investment process. So uh, the, the perpetual process is very similar in in some respects to steward Investors. Long, uh, strong focus on quality of companies, on the, the balance sheet strength, on um, the quality of management. So there's that qualitative aspect to that. And so there were aspects which which you kind of thought sustainability played a role, but it wasn't formalized. Um, we didn't have data flowing through. We didn't have uh, the discussions happening, perhaps as, as 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 we ought to. But we did have an excellent. Um, ethical SRI funds. So I started out um, helping manage the screens for that, start to think about process and and very importantly about investment governance and really built it from the ground up there. Yeah. Uh, about yeah. a year into that, I, I, I then uh, joined the, response, the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia Board and 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 became chair a, a little while after that and chaired for, for six years and was on the investor group on climate change board uh over that period and, and i'd also moved uh after a couple of years in that role at perpetual to colonial first state global asset management which is now first Century investors to, yeah. to lead responsible investment in asia pacific uh for, for, for the firm uh and that was uh again a very different type of context perpetual perpetual very aussie equities focused uh where uh, at least at that time and 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 gam being a, a large global uh, business investing all around the world. And, and one of the teams who uh, inspired me most in, in my time, again, was steward investors, steward investors, uh, which I now work in and have been with, with the team for the last almost three years, saw the connection between sustainability, long term returns, really, uh, as a as a as a investor that considered the quality of management uh, as being really key to how businesses are able to create and sustain value over time, took that uh, that idea to the next level when thinking about sustainability headwinds and tailwinds and how companies that were contributing positively to sustainable development and benefiting from that, like the, the way that they make money makes the world a better place, then that's got to be good for them over the long run. And particularly if they're run by by good quality management, that that to me uh seemed like like the right way to do it. And, and so it's been great to be able to now to now work with a team. And, and I and I sometimes describe it as I used to uh, well, I spent most of my career prodding and poking and trying to encourage people to to adopt sustainable investment practices and now I spend most of my time trying to run to keep up with the rest of the team who have been doing it for, for a long, long time. So your background started
0: originally in in uh, as a risk specialist. And often I ask the question about sustainable investing: is it a risk management tool, or is it actually a performance tool? In the sense that sustainable can sometimes be seen as well as you know being similar to sort of a, a quality approach, where sustainable businesses in the long run will just perform better. What's your point of view as sort of you know being a risk specialist? I would initially say, okay, risk, but you're also have that quality approach what is your view on it
1: so, i mean i think they're two sides of the same coin and and esg and sustainability issues manifest in a few different ways and so i i to simplify it i've always thought about it in sort of three areas and so there's the marginal benefits that come from being a, a better run business and so you're more efficient your costs are lower you you're able to retain uh and engage your people better and so they work harder and put more discretionary effort in and uh, you, ha- you have a good culture and so you you um, you, you don't have to you, you can trust that the right things are going to happen in the right ways throughout the organization and and there's lots of evidence across different um, aspects of or different ESG management issues uh, that they that they have those kind of marginal benefits. then you have and these are no doubt linked in terms of so better management of ESG issues um, producing those marginal benefits over time. But then you have the blow-ups of course and they're quite spectacular and the, the you know the bp oil spill still is the probably one of the yeah. most striking examples of that but we've had so many of course over the over the decade since and they're not predictable i think individual events as such but you can look at the quality of management you can look at uh how the organization approaches sustainability issues and say that one organization is more likely to get itself into trouble than another um, because because of the management of those issues. And so there's a there's a risk management aspect there. Uh, and then the largest of them all, and perhaps the hardest to really define and nail down, certainly in a, in a quantitative sense, is the structural shifts that are running through uh, the economy today. And so whether that's decarbonisation and electrification, uh, whether it's uh, more sustainable food systems and consumers wanting to have more sustainable products and services, whether it's the waste challenge that we have to um confront if it's plastics or, or, or other forms of waste uh, uh even just still the, the systemic underpayment of women for doing the same job as men these are the types of structural changes that you can see unfolding and companies that can position themselves well for that are, are likely to um to be able to capture those tailwinds we, we call them tailwinds and we also talk about headwinds for companies that aren't well positioned for those those structural changes and so i think depending on how your, what your focus is in terms of uh, how you're thinking about ESG issues and sustainability issues, then you can look at it both as a, as a risk or return driver uh, and, and ultimately that they are two sides of the same coin.
0: Yeah, I unlike when you, you said that originally when you're looking at this and you were thinking about climate change you didn't necessarily have an esg lens because you were like what what is esg and in some of the writings that that you've done recently i still get a sense that you're not particularly a fan of esg metrics um and i think you have uh in in one article you wrote something around sustainable metrics can be sometimes like coloring by numbers can you explain it a little bit
1: sure it certainly feels that way so we as an investment group at steward investors uh have a a strong focus on the qualitative aspects uh of uh management quality franchise quality and and financials and even in those areas while financials you think are absolutely quantitative you you can take some qualitative insights from the way companies choose to manage their accounts what they include what they don't include how quickly they pay suppliers, how much tax they pay. So there's a range of insights that you can draw even from the most quantitative of those areas. And then they become more qualitative after that. Like how trusted is the business? Um, How does it deal with its stakeholders? Uh, Is it likely to be in line for regulatory sanction or or tightening because of the the nature of their business model being exploitative or not? Uh, and, And management quality is the one that we look at the most because we're really looking for managers who can look past the short term and um set their businesses up for for long-term success and so often we've really liked the family uh led companies particularly in in asia pacific where we've where we did a lot of our investing in the early days and still do today
0: yeah so so what are some of the pitfalls that you can uh encounter when you stay too close to sort of generic metrics
1: and so when you have that kind of mindset and you're looking for those type of things there's a lot that is missed when you then try uh, and and deal with it in a a metricated fashion. And so take an ESG rating from any of the providers and generally you'll have maybe 100, 150 factors that have all been weighted in some black boxes to their specific materiality for a particular company or a particular index and they get rolled up to a score. Um, Whereas the issues that might be built somewhere into that Rating uh, become buried through aggregation, and so you don't really get investment insight out of them, at least not if you're investing bottom up, you might be able to use them in a, in a kind of a top down approach, but for us that, that doesn't make a lot of sense, so there's the the, the sin of aggregation, but then there's also um, the sin of measuring the wrong things, and so take carbon as a great example, so you have carbon footprinting, which is now very common in the TCFD talk calls for carbon footprinting of, of companies and um, and investment portfolios as well, uh, and it is undoubtedly a useful tool. But if you if you don't if you look at it in isolation, you miss the fact that um, the reserves of a fossil fuel company aren't captured in its carbon footprint, or the emissions that come from itself after it's sold its products and services. And similarly, the benefits of companies who are delivering solutions to climate change, reducing emissions through their products and services, that's not captured either. Um, the other challenge of course with carbon footprinting is that we still have a diversity of ways in which companies are choosing to uh, set their boundaries and measure so you'd think that this should be a a, a very structured and systematic approach to measuring this particular factor Um, but yet there's still i think half the companies globally don't disclose at all and the half that do uh, how, how how much can you rely on those on those measures and so um, for a range of reasons you you can say that yes this is important but you also need to treat it um, with with, with an appropriate grain of salt and you also need to think about how are the managers of these companies that I'm investing in can I rely on them? Can I trust them to give me good information that's actually going to help me make better informed investment decisions? And so you see all the discussion around greenwashing and, and what have you. So so they're just two examples, I guess, through aggregation or through measuring the wrong things or, or taking too narrow a view of an issue where metrics can get you into trouble.
0: Yeah. Let's, let's stay with uh, that, that question around carbon for a moment. So we see Increasingly more institutional investors commit to that net zero carbon target by 2050. Some of them putting some uh, interim measures in place as well. But it seems that a lot of sort of the initial phase is around um, setting a different benchmark that is just a lower carbon benchmark and and filtering out some of these uh, most heavy polluters. What is sort of your approach to this? are there more easy gains or more efficient ways of, of tackling this problem?
1: So I think if you think about the broader problem, then clearly more capital needs to go into the types of businesses and assets that are driving the low carbon economy and, and less of it needs to go into high, high carbon assets. So that, that, that's a kind of a very basic take a step back and think about it that way. But then there's a whole range of companies who are involved in the transition to a low carbon economy that uh, need to go faster, need to focus on other parts of their business to help those grow and, and adapt. And so from an investor perspective, I think engagement plays probably the most clear role, but yet the, often the hardest to define and the hardest to measure role that we can contribute to that transition. And, and also, the uh, I think there's other aspects so that you can engage, you can vote, the shareholder resolutions are quite common now in terms of in terms of climate and other ESG issues, um, supporting those in. Uh, But then I think there's other aspects of the policy landscape needs to change to support uh, a low carbon transition as well. And so understanding what your companies are doing in relation to political lobbying or or other other aspects in terms of how they market themselves and those types of things, I think is, is a really important thing for investors to be aware of. It's not just about the emissions, and it's not just about the products and services, those other aspects of how Companies conduct themselves are really critical, and investors need to take that that holistic view if they really want to help uh, sh- uh, shepherd companies along. Now, I think the there's this endless debate around engagement versus divestment. Yeah, you know, uh, and I think uh, actually that the, they're both wrong to see if, you, if you're if you're focused on one or the other. Like both are really important, and so the way that I tend to think about it is that uh, you need to have companies that are willing and able. To change. If they're not, then you're probably going to burn your capital. Uh, you're going to, and from our perspective, we, we consider uh, capital preservation as a key part of our role as as stewards of our clients' capital. And so, we we look at fossil fuel companies, and, and we we can't see how they're going to transition profitably. The risks just seem too great um, to take with our clients' capital, and so we're we're not going to invest in those types of companies because of because of the risks involved. However, there are a whole range of other companies, as I mentioned before, where you where you do need to really try and get them to improve their disclosure, to set targets, to uh, invest more capital, uh, to focus on, on research and development in certain areas. So all of those types of aspects where you have companies who are both willing and able to change and you can engage as a, a responsible steward over a long period of time, because I think the, the worst type of engagement is coming in uh, as a relatively short-term minded shareholder and just banging on the table and demanding things to change. I think uh, if you're building relationships and really trying to have that 10 year plus view of investing, that, that that's a, a much more constructive way to to try and uh, deliver change uh, w- within a company. And so that's the, the approach that we take is, is really uh, focus on the, the companies that we think are well positioned for that sustainable development uh, transition and engage with them to try and help them be better.
0: Yeah, so do you get involved as well with shareholder resolutions? Do you, do you file your own resolutions?
1: We we don't file our own, or haven't historically. I mean, we may do in the future, we could never count it out. Um, we do uh, support a, a large number of them when they do come up, but there aren't that many that have actually been proposed for our our companies. Kind of interesting things where you, so much discussion is is around uh shareholder resolutions, say at fossil fuel companies but they're companies that we don't tend to invest in we actually like the companies that we're investing in we want them to succeed we think that they are well positioned for sustainable development that they act ethically that they have um management who are who have high levels of integrity they're they're core parts of what we're looking for in companies and so those companies uh tend not to have as many shareholder resolutions placed on their register, we tend to want to engage with those companies in a constructive way over time, rather than taking a more adversarial approach through a shareholder resolution. Uh, Where we see the most shareholder resolutions tends to be in the US because there is that more adversarial culture in that market in in terms of uh, in terms of resolutions and often you, you sometimes see companies with half a dozen different resolutions from different shareholders in the us and and i think they certainly they, they have a role and they're incredibly powerful as a signal uh so they they're very important um and so that's why i don't i don't count it out in future as as something that we might do but we, but it's just not because of the nature of our investing uh it, it's not something that's really been uh needed at, at this stage so you're a bottom-up uh stock picker and so you basically
0: invest in the companies that you think are good do you still use um negative screens to to filter out certain unsustainable companies
1: it's it's interesting question because so we we, rather than starting with a universe of six thousand companies in the acqui or or whatever the the benchmark might be we, we start with a blank piece of paper and we try to build a portfolio based on the quality companies that we can find literally from from that blank page and so Uh, The idea of kind of screening companies out doesn't really make sense to us because we're thinking about it from the opposite direction and and the companies that we would not invest in because of their sustainability positioning or because they don't have the quality attributes that we're that we're looking for um, would undoubtedly get knocked out by by um, negative screens if if you were to if you were to take that approach, Uh, but it's just uh, uh, not not the way that we think about things, however. It is extremely important for our clients to be confident that we won't invest in things that um, that are inconsistent with our investment philosophy or approach. It's really important for our clients to understand where we stand on certain issues and what they can expect from us. And so we have a position statement on controversial and harmful products and services, where we really lay out in detail what, they, what clients can reasonably expect um, from us in our investing and what companies we would and wouldn't um, allocate capital to. And we have uh, the types of, checks that you would checks and balances that you would expect to have um, in any investment organization so pre-trade compliance checks. so we use we do have an external provider that just um, ensures that that check is in place before we before we um, buy a new company. We have those uh, quarterly checks that come through to see uh, where activities perhaps um, are, are in certain areas that we wouldn't ordinarily be comfortable with or wouldn't be investing in. We also have controversy monitoring and that comes through daily from a from a research provider called RepRisk, and so if companies are uh, are in the newspapers for the wrong reasons we can start to take that on board and and, and engage with companies where the issue warrants it and and try and really understand whether the the assessment that we've made around the quality of that business ought to change as a result of of some of these issues because ultimately uh, all of these things come back to how do we think about the quality of a company and its ability to deliver value over the long run
0: yeah so we're in the middle of of quite a, a strange period where we had pandemics going on we had uh, natural disasters and now we also have the invasion in Ukraine uh, on and on that last bit uh, has this changed sort of the perspective for some of the companies that you are investing in so th- there is on one hand this idea that Uh, countries want to uh, decrease their reliance on oil and gas um, for obvious reasons in this conflict and that this might push uh, the development of renewable energy. On the other end, you mentioned around those um, restrictions of reputational risk and and, um, has this sort
1: of shifted with the recent conflict? From an energy side of things, the transition is well underway the cost competitiveness of renewables, increasingly of batteries and other other forms of technology which will allow us to, to shift to, to clean and green energy was already uh, well underway. And whenever you see energy prices rise, then that uh, in the medium or longer term is going to benefit those cleaner technologies because it makes them even more uh, uh, cost beneficial to operate that way. It makes energy efficiency more um, cost beneficial to, to, to undertake those programs. Um, in the short term, of course, there's there's uh, serious ructions and, and genuine demand. People will die if they can't get the heating that they need in, in Europe, where it gets very cold in the winter. And so uh, it, I think, unfortunately, because of how long we've waited to really accelerate the transition to renewables and to really deal with climate change as seriously as what we need to, and we're, when it's, we're still not there at that point yet. We're going to face issues where they come up, like um, whether it's COVID or whether it's a conflict uh, like Russia and Ukraine, volatility in those areas. And so companies, when we think about uh, the companies that we invest in, and we always struggled with Russia because even when you find good quality companies in Russia with good stewards, the oligarchs would often move in and you worry about corruption and you worry about those types of issues. And so we didn't have any companies listed in Russia. And I think for uh sustainability conscious investors or focused investors you'd have to wonder now where you have uh indexes which are pulling out the entire countries um what you know even though they're relatively small but taking it all out of the benchmark but you can't get the capital out because the stock market's closed and so what what type of thinking ought to have been happening well before the conflict in terms of the type of market that russia is to Mm -hmm. invest in and whether you can actually invest in good quality sustainable companies uh, in that country So it does pose that question i think the reliance on benchmarks for some of these things and whether that's um reasonable or sensible uh and then uh from a uh a um a longer term perspective i think what the uh both COVID and 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 the invasion of ukraine have shown is that we need businesses that are more resilient to uh unpredictable events and changes and so we had i think up until uh, COVID a culture of sort of just-in-time supply chains and keeping low stores of inventory and, um, you know, big, big focus on, on working capital and, and, and those types of issues, which are all uh, a philosophy that works where you don't have these big disruptions. But when you do, we've seen the supply chain issues that have then reverberated around the world. And so I think when investors are kind of thinking about companies that they're investing in, uh, and, and this is whether you're thinking about it from a sustainability perspective or not, Those types of things like having a strong balance sheet so you can endure financial calamity and come through the other side stronger and able to invest through those types of issues. Having um, uh, really well uh, understood supply chains and sustainability is a big part of that. Like if your supply chains aren't exploitative, if you're really concerned about deforestation impacts, for instance, if you're a consumer goods companies, you're doing more work on your supply chains, which will help you reshape your supply chains if something goes wrong and if if things happen badly. And so I think it is a different example, but just another example of how companies that are really leading the charge on some of these sustainability issues, Uh, can come out of of situations like what we've experienced in the uh, in both the pandemic and with this conflict stronger
0: we've also seen some quite large multinationals pull out of the Russian market uh, basically abandoning their operations there do you see that as sort of a a vindication of ESG where finally this is taken serious because I, I thought to a degree it was relatively surprising by how quickly companies move to just distance themselves from the Russian market, which I don't know if that would have happened like 10, 15 years ago where perhaps it wasn't as high on the agenda. Do you see it as a, as a form of where people are more aware of sustainable issues?
1: I think people are definitely more aware of sustainable issues. There's no no question in my mind about that. And you see that in, in lots of different examples, but I'm not sure that's one of them. Um, I think this is, a. I mean, we, we haven't seen a conflict of this scale in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Uh, the sanctions have come through reasonably quickly and uh, and, and, are, and are fairly deep and there may well be more. And so uh, how much of it is is companies really trying to get out and, pre- and preserve what they can um in, in the face of those uh, impending challenges that this who, who can predict how how this war will end um or whether it's a it's it's companies taking more of a you know moral or a sustainability focused perspective, you'd have to ask each one individually, really. It's it's hard to say. I think the, the, the areas where you do see a lot of positive change in relation to companies uh, moving in these areas is there's still this dichotomy where... Uh, high, so, and COVID is, is actually a really good example where you saw some companies who went to a lot of effort to keep on staff, who uh, invested in R&D throughout the pandemic so that they could come out stronger, who uh kept suppliers on uh even to help uh, put lifelines there because they knew that they would need those supply chains to be able to bounce back at the end of the pandemic and then you saw other companies who operated with that shorter term uh horizon trying to satisfy the markets on a quarter by quarter basis cutting staff cutting back in other areas looking so the, the 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 different approaches by different companies i think is really stark in these types of uh, situations where, where there's where there's a big disruption and for us we 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 try to focus on those companies that try to look through the immediate crisis who are already strong coming into the crisis but who can look through it and really try and um, think about their businesses 10 years out and, and how what the things that they need to do now in order to be able to cement that 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 future
0: yeah did it lead to any sort of surprises within the portfolio that you have where either uh, some companies were not
1: reacting in the way that you were expecting uh, not so much during COVID. i mean we, we had i mean a, a great example of a company that reacted the way we would expect is uh, in our uh, global emerging markets uh fund we invest in a company called epan they're they're a us listed but they have a lot of uh, they were started by a russian um who uh, has a lot of staff in ukraine a lot of stuff in uh in russia uh and other parts of eastern europe they're an it consultancy type uh business very high quality uh in in, in every respect growing really strongly and they uh have come out w- with the conflict and said quite clearly they cannot provide guidance clearly because of, of what is going on um and their focus is on their people and trying to get their people to safety where that's possible um trying to back up their operations, so they i think it was about half their staff are in in, in that area and the, and the rest other countries and so trying to help look after their clients to ensure that they can be um, still looked after uh, through those other locations but they've fundamentally said that their their primary concern is the safety and welfare of of their their people and that's what we would expect and that's what we would want to see and so that those types of things are are encouraging in the short term uh they've clearly like their, their share price suffered as a result as you'd expect the market tends to you know, react first and ask questions later, and so we still see that uh, over the long run, the company can can build back better. But obviously, the there is always that question mark about how how much damage can any individual firm sustain, and so it's an active discussion internally as to as to um, as to the, their prospects going forward but we feel ultimately like the quality of the business and and the way that they'd set themselves up allows them to potentially come out of this better at the other end
0: yeah yeah sure now that's an it company and um we talked a little bit earlier about technology companies before we started a podcast and, and some of the changes that happened there from a sustainability point of view um are you concerned about some of these these very large technology companies and and sort of how they influence the market or
1: is it simply a matter of we just don't invest in those? Well, I think it's, we've tended not to, we invest in a lot of technology companies but tended not to invest in B2C, business to consumer technology companies, there are some exceptions. Generally, we like B2B um, technology companies better. We feel as though. particularly at the super large end, we wonder about how they can achieve sustainable growth. In the long run, we we look at the way their size and their market dominance and whether that is sustainable, whether regulators are going to step in and try to um, rein that in. We've obviously seen all of the the ethical lapses in relation um, to privacy, in relation to the way that uh, consumers' data is used and shared. Uh, and even in relation to the, the, the whole the issues around fake news and and, 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 and politics. And so, uh, so, so, that, so that has been a concern that's weighed on us and sort of prevented us from investing in, in some of those companies because we haven't been able to get comfortable around the quality of the management, about, around the quality and sustainability of the growth. Whereas when you look at companies that are supporting other businesses, uh, they tend to, their customers and the people that they service are the same. Whereas I think with a lot of B2C companies, um, particularly in the social media space, their customers are not the same. So if you're not paying for the service, you are the the product. And so that type of thinking, which poses all sorts of dilemmas for these types of companies. To give you some examples, uh, Taiwan Semiconductor, one of the highest quality companies in Asia, maybe the world really well managed, prudently managed over the long run. Uh, have, have been able to show their innovation and, and their quality. And so that's a type of technology company that that we can get be behind for the long term. And we think that they're that the way that they're developing their business is contributing to a lot of sustainable development drivers, whether it's from um, access to education and information in emerging markets um, through to driving the transition in, in energy and, and, and transportation. And so. So, so those types of companies, I think, are, 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 are a lot more understandable for us, and also um, a, a lot higher quality over the long run.
0: Yeah, yeah. it's interesting because uh, I, I read an article by a colleague of yours that, that gives some stats around uh, what's happening in sort of the, the corporate space around technology companies. And it was talking about the the amount of acquisitions that take place that sort of fly a little bit on the radar because they're below the 5% sort of threshold. And I think it, it mentioned the statistic there that in 2019, there were 819 small companies that were being taken over without them having to report on it. When you look at
1: statistics like that, that does it worry you? I think it is worrying generally that you have such, I mean, you look at the returns from the, the fang you know we're traditionally known as the fang companies uh have dominated the market for a long time and uh and they make up a a, a very large proportion of of u.s uh profits even so this is these are, are dominant players in in their in their markets and uh how, how does competition emerge in those in those spheres uh when they when the smaller companies get bought up and 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 so then how do you actually get markets to function properly in those types of dimensions, how do you ensure that people are treated fairly? And how do you even ensure that um, appropriate rates of tax, for instance, are being paid? Because those technology companies, the 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 ones that have driven all, all of those returns, also pay a disproportionately lower rate of tax than what is the standard sticker rate in the markets where they're where they're listed. And so I think it poses myriad concerns both for their investors, but for for regulators, which potentially, and, and governments, which potentially will um, uh, come in to try and balance that out. But it, it is, I think it's, it's really uncertain as to how that is going to evolve. And we've also seen, I guess, as globalization, we've sort of seen more of a regionalization in more recent times. And we've seen the, the posture that China has taken towards some of its technology companies and some of its um, extremely wealthy uh, entrepreneurs. And and so I, I, I don't think that there's a one-size-fits-all approach for, for managing these types of issues, but I, I don't think it's at all clear how, company, how governments, say, in the US or Europe are going to deal, deal with the types of issues that, that, that this has brought about.
0: And, of course, technology is a very sort of broad term. So we were talking a little bit earlier about everything is, these days is a technology company. But from sort of a sustainable perspective, are are there any sort of technologies that you're really excited about or or areas that you think can really help the sustainable
1: area? It's funny because there's a lot of discussion around renewable energy, distributed grids, uh, electric vehicles, um, all highly technology-reliant transformations. But I think some of the things that I, I think are really interesting that'll have a huge impact that don't get that level of attention so we invest in a company called spirax Sarco. they are specialists in steam so you don't get much older a technology than steam you know they used to run the trains on them <laughs> they're used across the food system they're used across uh, medical they're used um, in uh, industrial uh, applications in factories And a lot of the steam is produced by gas boilers and spirax is investing in how do they electrify the production of the steam which uh, I guess from you know, the, the challenges that we mentioned earlier around Russia and Ukraine and access to gas, I mean it, that's an extra motivation for wanting to do that. But from a climate perspective, the impacts are, are, are far-reaching if you can actually transition those uh, gas-fired boilers into electric-fired boilers and, and or electric boilers and run them off off renewables. You know, other technologies like hot water heating. So it takes a huge amount of energy. To um, heat hot water, we invest in a company called AO Smith they make the most efficient hot water heaters in the world. Um, they've got a really big presence in in China, interestingly enough, and and um, have partnered with, with Chinese partners. They're delivering uh, their highly efficient products into that market, uh, and also leading the way on things like heat pumps and uh, and solar uh, hot water systems. Huge amounts of energy that go into those types of technologies it was a bit old hat and a bit boring, nowhere near as exciting as 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 evs and, and those types of things and they're companies that have this tailwind behind them where they'll they'll be able to sustain their growth for for decades into the future as they as they transform the underlying infrastructure of the economy yeah. to cleaner more efficient um, things and then i think the the ones that are, are interesting which, Uh, aren't sort of specifically technology uh, as such, but they're companies who are using technology in really clever ways. And so, uh, for instance, HDFC uh, is a housing development finance corporation. It's an Indian mortgage lender primarily. It also owns bank and insurance company, uh, has most of its branches in rural uh, areas of India in the uh, non-large cities, uh, has a large agricultural footprint as well as a result of that and so when you think about how and this again is the color by numbers example that i was getting at before in terms of if you you just think about the traditional sustainability metrics you might go you might look at oh, how much access to finance are they giving to underserved communities and that's really important and they do that extremely well but these particular underserved communities are on the front lines of deforestation are on the front lines of using fertilisers and unsustainable farming practices and they've been developing technology platforms which they deliver to their agricultural-based clients which give them pricing transparency so they can get better prices for their goods and services that give them education and ways of testing the soil and understanding what nutrients are needed so they don't have to use as many of the fossil-based fertilisers as what they might otherwise do um, in their farming Uh, and also helping them to more sustainably intensify their yields which hopefully then leads on to uh, lower demand for deforestation, which is another behaviour they also encourage through conservation and that idea of uh, traceability of the supply chain yeah. up through to the consumer companies. And it's those types of technologies which really facilitate that. But you need, whether it's a banking company or whether it's a consumer goods company, to then apply those technologies to their supply chains in a way that then can deliver those outcomes. And so I find that, that part really fascinating. And it, again, it's a mark of that quality of a company that they're able to uh, to do that because it'll make them more resilient in, in the future. Yeah,
0: yeah, fascinating. I want to talk a little bit about diversity and inclusion because Stuart Investors has commissioned a research project with the University of Technology in Sydney, which is around recruitment and retention and some of the, how you can improve diversity uh, through that. C- can you tell me a little bit about sort of the background of the study and, and how it fits in with, sort of your broader investment uh, decision-making process?
1: Absolutely. So uh, diversity is is uh, something that we think about for all of the companies we invest in. Um, we, we think about it from the context that companies that uh, have, whether it's uh, gender, cultural, uh, socioeconomic economic that, that have those voices around the table uh, are going to be able to make better decisions because they're including the views of more people. And, and the, uh, we talk about diversity and inclusion. The inclusion bit is, is, is absolutely critical. Has to almost come first before the, because if you have the diversity, but you're not taking the views on board, or if it's not changing the way that you think about your company and how you're going to operate, um, there's not there's not much good in that. So. Um, so we, we often commission research where we're really trying to understand some of the, the more systemic issues that run through, whether it's a sector or whether it's an issue based. Um, we found that, again, we, the ESG ratings haven't been particularly helpful, but when we go out and tender for research from specialists in the field, um, we get much deeper insights and we can then apply that to our engagement or our investing. And in the case of diversity, we really wanted to understand what who were the companies that were making a difference and actually... Uh, able to change over um, a, a relatively short period of time to improve uh, the representation in board, in management, the gender equity, pay gap, uh, those types of issues, and and so we commissioned UTS to do this uh, to do this research, and they they looked at the types of areas, so whether it's training and development, whether it's um, maternity and parental leave, uh, w- whether it is uh, pay related issues. Uh, flexibility, all, all of the types of characteristics, and then found a range of case studies. One of the examples that were really interesting. Was a technology uh, software company where they had women that were coming through that had uh, qualifications in technology but weren't software engineers, and so developed an apprenticeship style program where they could transition them through to software engineers and and to and to then uh, improve the, the diversity in that area because they knew that was important. They knew it was important from a pipeline perspective because they needed the talent, and so. Uh, those types of interventions are, are, are really uh, interesting uh, and I think w- worth exploring for companies. But we've also seen, so Helmer is a, is a, is a conglomerate based in the UK that, develop, that uh, invests in a lot of uh, other businesses, wholly owns those other businesses, all focused on making a lot a better place in health, in, in infrastructure and safety. Uh, and, and they, over the course of six years or so, managed to completely transform their board and their senior management ranks. So they went from having almost no women to having almost half uh, in, in both spheres. And that came from leadership. It was really like there was programs and all of the other things that happen that need to happen, but it really came from the CEO who, who recognized the benefits and was willing to drive that change throughout the organization. And so I think you need to have the leadership, you need to have in interesting ways to make uh, the interventions. And what that allowed us to do then was to send that report to the top 10 companies that we held in each of our strategies uh, and, and encourage them to, to look at the results, can reflect on their own approach to diversity and where they might be able to improve. And then that's then been the baseline, I guess, for ongoing engagement with those companies that can, can improve in that area.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Are there any similar projects in the pipeline uh, uh, research that you have commissioned?
1: Uh, So we had a couple that have come in recently. So Conflict Minerals is is a collaborative engagement that we've been working on with a number of other uh, investors through the Principles for Responsible Investing. And again, it uh, it has that hallmark as well, being of this systemic issue across the IT sector, we have exposure to semiconductors, to to, uh, a number of other technologies which uh, potentially would have uh, conflict minerals in them. We wanted to understand what good practice looked like. How can you make a an effective intervention in this area. So we commissioned two pieces of research and then have used those to help support uh, a broader investor collaboration so that we could re- really try and get companies to, um, to to focus more on that issue and, and to uh, uh, to really sort the supply chain out because that's the bit that's uh, that, that's still, the traceability in those supply chains is still quite quite poor. Um, we also did another one recently on smallholder farmers. And so I mentioned the, the HDFC example. Uh, just a moment ago, and and it struck us because we were engaging with a number of consumer goods companies around deforestation in 2019. All of them raised the issue of of smallholder farmers because they are at the front lines of these issues. It'd probably shock you to find that So 40% of the palm oil that's produced in the world is from smallholder farmers. 70 or 80% of the coffee is produced by smallholder farmers. So they're essential parts of the supply chain for companies like Nestle and Unilever and, and many others. And, uh, and so they referred to these to this very important group as being on the front lines of deforestation, but they all had different approaches for how they dealt with it. And so we commissioned a piece of research to understand what does good practice look like? And again, that can form the basis of engagement for the future and, and, the, and you know, HDFC is one example where we found a number of really good, good practices after the research had come in because we, we better knew what to look for. At that point, but you had uh, a range of initiatives, and the most important, or the ones that were most effective, were the ones that took a bit of a, a system view. It's not just about premium pricing, although that's important. But it's around building infrastructure, the education uh, for, for kids, so you don't have child labour coming into you know less of an incentive around that. Uh, the access to markets, um, how you deal with intermediation in markets, certification systems. So there's a range of of things. There's no panacea or, or, or silver bullet. for for these complex issues, but we're then able to, in a more informed way, uh, engage with the companies that we're investing in and really, I guess, assess the quality of their approach and and feed that into our our assessment of their quality overall.
0: Yeah, let's, let's finish up with a a quick look at the sustainable development goals. Um, This seems to be an increasingly popular sort of framework to, to measure investments against in a sustainable sense. But at the same time, there's also a bit of greenwashing, or in this case, rainbow washing going on. What do you think of these goals? Are they a helpful framework or are they just another color by numbers metric?
1: The, the SDGs are very useful because they are globally agreed uh, goal for or set of goals that humanity can aspire to. And so when we think about um, the, the headwinds and tailwinds that I've mentioned a few times through the course of this conversation, what do they look like in a decade in 20 years time? And the SDGs, they're out to 2030, but you could see the direction of travel and you can sort of try to start to understand how companies are either contributing or not contributing, are holding back some of those those goals. And so that sort of more general uh take a few steps back perspective, they're really useful. Uh, I think the problem is that they weren't designed as, as an investment metric or as a as a as a business um. Uh, set of in, uh, indicators or, or things like that, they are they are then commonly misinterpreted or misused in the context of of trying to to show how you might be contributing as an investor or as a company um, to the SDGs. And I think there's three things that people uh, can look out for, simple things, to help them understand where the companies are actually over egging their, their claims around the Sustainable Development Goals. So one uh, what, what is how important is the issue to the company itself? And so do they are they deriving revenues from things which are helping promote those goals? Are they investing in research and development? What's their capex look like? Uh, the culture of the organization, so a bit less um, financial and more uh, qualitatively focused around um, how they operate and how they do things. Uh, that starts to give you a picture of, of how what it means to the company and whether the company sees it as a strategic imperative, then it's what does it mean for the issue itself. So is the company actually uh, contributing in a way that's having a, a meaningful and, and uh, demonstrable, not necessarily measurable, but demonstrable impact on the issue? Uh, and, and there's multiple ways that you can you can look at that. There are impact metrics, but again, it can come down to the management of supply chains and and those types of issues to really understand how companies can have an impact on the goals. And then lastly, is the balance, and this is the thing that's most often missing is that there is no perfect company. Um, there's no, certainly no perfect investor, and you need to be able to show. And and these issues are really complicated and they're really hard. And so you need to be able to show that there there are mistakes. There are areas where you're looking to improve because you, you haven't got that um down pat yet. And so I think when you're when you're reading a disclosure around the SDGs, if they're not actually helping you understand some of the challenges and the risks and the the learnings, if they're not able to demonstrate how it's impacting the goals and if they're not showing that it actually means something to the company as opposed to being a little bit of corporate philanthropy on the side, um then then you, you you've got a reasonable idea of, of whether they're they're authentic. Yeah.
0: So. You should make a good assessment of not just how they fit with the goals, but also what some of the risks are and challenges compared to the goals. I think you framed it. Well, Pablo, thank you very much for this conversation. It was great having you on the show. Thanks, Walter. It was good to talk to you. Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com.